As the Omicron variant of the coronavirus spreads quickly around the world, a number of industries and sectors have been hit by staff shortages, with many people at the same time having to isolate as a result of infections. What does this mean for the labor market going forward? What does it mean for future trends in jobs and careers? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you enjoy this show, please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is my co-host and The National's future editor, Kelsey Warner. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. So it's been an interesting start to the year, I would say. Oh, gosh. Interesting. Yes, it's always interesting. We, um, You and I have departed the in-studio experience and are now back to work from home amid Omicron, if I can you know, speak a little bit out of school. But I do feel like the question on everyone's mind right now is, okay, happy new year, happy 2022. How is this different from where we were in 2021 or say at the end of the first quarter in 2020? And with staff shortages and the labor market in flux, there's just so many open questions and so many areas of you know potential opportunity, but also real, real danger as we see healthcare struggling to keep up, kids going back to remote learning, aviation struggling to, you know, have pilots in seats. It's, it's a, there's a lot going on. Yes. And, and, you know, we saw a lot of uh, trends in 2020 and 2021 about the labor market uh, when many industries suddenly had to stop, people were furloughed. Um, they, there was some uncertainty about which industries, which careers would continue. Of course, the remote working, and then you had distance learning and, and we saw all of that. And there was a lot of discussion about longer term trends. But what's happened uh, sort of at the tail end of 2021, the beginning of 2022, is that for industries um, still like education, healthcare, aviation, um, hospitality, and others, suddenly people who are still working, still in jobs, um, still very much you know, active, had to go isolate because Omicron you know, spread so fast, and, and other variants I assume as well, but Omicron being the dominant one, all of a sudden at the same time, lots of people couldn't show up to work. And th- this is something that potentially um, could be a, a regular feature every winter, every every flu season, every time there's a new variant, because um, even though it might not be as dangerous, it seems like the data is showing, um, you still have a problem when everybody has to go home at the same time. Right. We can't all have the equivalent of the flu at the same time. It would not be very good for putting out a newspaper or keeping a hospital open. That's what we're experiencing right now. So to talk about these emerging dynamics and this really this crossroads that it feels like we're at in terms of employment trends, we spoke to Abhishek Prakash, a co-founder and geopolitical futurist at the Center for Innovating the Future, an advisory firm based in Toronto, about what to expect in the year ahead and beyond. Here it is. Kelsey and I have been discussing the last couple of days about this this trend that's that's been apparent recently, which is that okay, we had certain labor force uh, changes in 2020, 2021, but most recently it seems that there are short term uh, issues with staff, aviation, education, healthcare, hospitality that aren't about sort of historical trends about you know, what happened when people lost their jobs or had to furlough um, and, and maybe aren't coming back. But these are people who are actually active. And then suddenly, because of isolation rules, because of Omicron spreading so fast, because of, of, of you know, the unevenness, I guess, of vaccinations around the world, 
suddenly we're seeing employers having to cope with short-term staff shortages. And so from your perspective, you know, as a futurist, as an, an expert on, on, you know, how we might be living, you know, what, what can we sort of discern from this as to how companies and employers might, you know, change or might be already beginning to change to accommodate what might become, we suspect, a regular occurrence every what was a flu season, but now maybe rechristened in the future, um, you know, an Omicron season, if you like. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, let's let's step back for a second and try to gauge what happened when this pandemic hit. When it hit the world and the world went into lockdown, uh, it was really a combination of trying to get this health situation under control, but at the same time, uh, maintain some kind of economic stability. Every economy um, focused on on. Know, government uh, governments giving money to, to citizens who who couldn't work um, and, and supporting businesses who were affected by these lockdowns. Now we're seeing the effects of this pandemic and of how governments have responded on labor forces. And we're seeing it in, in multiple ways. The, the first is that some of these measures that have taken place during the lockdown, some of the innovations that have emerged are actually having a blowback effect. So if you look at in the UK, you have the, the, this app that's pinging people constantly that they've become come into contact with somebody. And you have tens of thousands, or if not hundreds of thousands of people who are forced to quarantine because an app has said that they've come into contact with somebody that has coronavirus. You also have a serious cultural shift taking place where people are beginning to question what their occupation should be, that we were all in this kind of journey and, and moving in a certain direction. And this pandemic has um, almost given people a breathing space to say, okay, do I want to continue doing what I'm doing? And a lot of people, especially millennials and Gen Z, are beginning to realize that they don't want to continue doing what they're doing. and. Thirdly, you have now companies are beginning to pick sides almost in terms of, do you have to be vaccinated? Do you not have to be vaccinated? Can you work from home or can you not work from home? And that's also having an effect on people's passion, on people's incentive to go to work. But I think a, a really big challenge that that's not being discussed is that Will we return to a point where these shortages are resolved? And there is no data right now to support that we're going to return to the same economic design that existed before the pandemic. And that's, that's a critical factor that this pandemic has forced every country to redesign their economies. And so when we think about labor shortages, when we think about labor forces, we have to take that into consideration too. Abishar, I think what you just illustrated or what you described was how is 2022 different from 2020? How much you kind of laid, laid down the arc of how much we've changed. And okay, so we can't answer the arc of the economic story or what the new economic models will look like amid great resignation in the US, amid lying flat in China, what have you. But I want to talk to you about the technology story though that we're seeing now emerge 
we now can work remotely and Mark Zuckerberg's now promising us the metaverse and all sorts of good things. Meanwhile, in the U.S., first nine months of 2021, companies ordered more robots than ever before as they struggled to hire workers. It's a really interesting headline, but I want to dig in and ask you, what is the technology story to you right now? Where does tech come in and what is the fluff versus the fact on on this topic? Well, there's three stages to this technology story. The first stage is as you mentioned, this work from home, that was the stage that all of us kind of adapted to where we were all working from our home offices with Zoom and and doing face calls. And we all became reliant on these digital communications technologies in a way that we haven't been reliant on, on before. That's the first stage. The second stage now is that because there are labor shortages, You have in hospitals, telepresence robots easing the burden on nurses and doctors. You have in restaurants in Asia, robot waiters emerging. You have factories increasingly um, deploying industrial robots. You have countries like Israel seem to be accelerating their push towards uh, rolling out self-driving cars. So you have now, this is the second stage that we're entering where technology is Almost, if you if you imagine before the pandemic that technology was on the periphery, now we're seeing technology become the core. Uh, and the, the third stage is, as you mentioned, the, this metaverse, uh, the shockwaves that this is going to create is yet to be fully understood. When people can live and work in these virtual worlds, it's going to completely change how we as people, how companies, how countries operate. You have Barbados who's announced that they want to open up an embassy in the metaverse. You have the city of Seoul saying that they want to create their own metaverse. So are workers in Seoul now going to be in this South Korean metaverse? There's a lot of of gray. It's almost like we're entering a twilight zone here. So these are the three stages. And, And right now in the second stage, it's very important that we understand okay, there is a labor shortage, there is serious supply chain problems around the world. Yes, robotics and AI can address some of them, if not all of these challenges. But if we are going to roll out automation at a rapid pace, then there are major social and political consequences to that, the effects of which may not be felt in the short term, but will be definitely felt in the long term. I'm glad you said that, Abishur, because it, it strikes me as being almost an accidental uh, proof of concept these last two years, where many governments, not all, but many, and if we're talking about in, in, in advanced societies, um, essentially paid people to, to stay away from the workplace. And that was a cushion for what you're talking about. We didn't, we, look, we've already had unrest on the streets. You know, you already look, there's especially young men, you know, with, with, with less to do or, or less to look forward to. Um, you know, in altercations with authorities um, everywhere we look. So if we are going to go forward with this, if the private sector is going to push ahead with automation because it's the most efficient um, way to to do things, then I can't see how governments get out of continuing to support people on an individual level. And, and you know, they, it's, it's like quantitative easing in the last crisis. Everyone thought, oh, we'll just do this for a little bit. And we still have it. So, I, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but it feels like we're almost crafting 
sort of what the future looks like already? Well, let's not forget that it's not just the private sector that's driving the deployment of automation. We ha- you have country-led strategies. China, for example, has a massive government-led strategy to deploy robots throughout the workforce. Japan right now wants to have 24-7 factories that are completely automated. Why do they want to do that? Because the average age of a farmer in Japan is 67 years old. And that's why Japan is investing in exoskeletons because it needs this, this workforce that would probably be retired in, in other countries to stay active and stay productive. So you have countries and companies both pushing for automation. The question is, has this kind of government support created a new paradigm in society? So what I mean by that is, if you look at major projections that were made several years ago about how much, what segment of societies can be automated. I think the Bank of England said that 50% of jobs in England could be automated. Uh, the World Bank said something like 85% of jobs in Ethiopia could be automated or are at risk of being automated. Then what do these people do? And so there is now a paradigm that's been created where governments may now kind of pivot towards supporting people that have lost their jobs to robots. Now, whether that takes the form of UBI, whether that takes the form of a robot tax on the private sector to fund the UBI remains to be seen. But governments are going to play a big role, not just in supporting, but potentially also in suppressing um, certain types of jobs being automated. Same, the same way that governments are currently trying to regulate the way certain types of artificial intelligence is deployed. I wanted to ask you about that, Abishur, is in terms of governments seem to be on the back heel when it comes to regulating technology, even the most basic technology, like how we operate on social media, for example. Um, right, right. What is, so you're talking about metaverses that are nation-led, not big tech-led. How does that happen when it seems like most countries aren't even sophisticated enough to, you know, put guardrails on, you know, our, our PowerPoint presentations? <laughs> well, let's separate the kind of slow pace of regulation towards big tech and the way that countries are regulating new tech, because it's clear that really for decades now, governments were not paying attention to the rise of these large technology companies. And only you know several years ago, largely because of election fears, was there kind of a wake-up call that, hey, we need to do something. Now, however, when it comes to these new technologies, governments are not waiting around. I mean, what the EU is doing when it comes to uh, building guardrails around how, how AI bias, um, how prevalent bias is in algorithms, or what the UN is trying to do in regulating autonomous weapons, or what the UK wants to do in creating global AI ethics. Uh, these are all signs that countries are deeply aware that they can't Uh, kind of just observe and not take any action. They have to act fast. Now, the, the key question to me when it comes to regulation is that we, we lived in an era where we kind of had these global rules. We kind of have these global institutions that may, not everybody may have uh, had the same rules, but at least these global systems and rules and institutions created some kind of direction and guidance that the world could move in. Uh, now we have 
a world that is not necessarily following that path, where countries are kind of not only moving in different directions when it comes to technology, but are now also competing with each other to regulate these technologies. So you look at, for example, the UK has created this institution called D10, and it stands for 10 democracies. They want to regulate global 5G, but only with 10 countries. So if that's kind of the, the methodology of how, whether it's the metaverse, whether it's automation, whether it's quantum, whatever technology we're talking about, if that's the, the playbook that's being adopted where you know countries are going to compete or governments are going to compete or we're having these camps of nations, then it creates serious challenges. Serious challenges and potentially serious threats when you talk about the in-group versus the out-group of of 5G or the metaverse or AI. I mean, that sounds like a scary outgroup to be in, potentially. The new geography of the world is vertical. That technology is not making the world more open and accessible. Technology is actually causing the world to divide and split. And it's not just between uh, countries. We're even seeing this on a, on a, on a city level. I mean, the fact that the city of Shanghai wants to create its own metaverse. The city of Seoul wants to create its own metaverse. Uh, these are signs that you know cities and, and division may now exist between cities instead of between countries. And so it, I think that the, that the serious uh, obstacles and, and the serious gray areas that need to be addressed is that if there is no more global guidance, if we accept that we're now moving in a different direction, that we're now stepping into a more vertical world, then what role do institutions play? That's the big, a big question that has to be answered. Secondly, if you take a country like uh, Indonesia, Indonesia's uh, president has announced that it wants to replace uh, a large chunk of the bureaucracy with AI. Now, whose rules will Indonesia adopt? So you now have to question the sides that countries are picking. And, and lastly, you really have to understand that when it comes to something like the metaverse, companies are now creating their own territories. And the, the power that these technology companies have over economies, have over labor forces, have over generations is going to increase tenfold. The only other question I wanted to ask you was, okay, we talked about governments trying to support workers who aren't working, but to also attract workers. Right. There's like a fierce global competition to attract talent. How do you do it in 2022 when we seem like we've kind of like thrown the picnic blanket up and we're looking to see what's going to land? How are countries competing for top global talent? What are the smart ones doing? Well, you're absolutely right. There is a global fight for talent, whether you call it the geopolitics of talent or you call it vertical talent flows. Uh, I mean, let's look at first what are how are countries competing? That's the key point. You have uh, Taiwan proposing that if you work in Taiwan's high tech sectors, whether it's semiconductors or AI, you can't even visit mainland China. So you almost have controls emerging about where people can travel to if you're considered high level talent. You have the EU creating Ellis, which are these series of AI labs across the EU to stop AI talent from going to America. And Ellis is modeled on CERN, which was created after World War II to stop the physics, European physics talent from leaving for the US. 
Um, you have what what uh, Japan is doing when it comes to Japanese companies uh, like SoftBank saying we need to build an AI corridor, not with the whole world, but just with India and Southeast Asia, because that's how we want to acquire talent and develop talent. So countries are uh, are competing by almost establishing barriers against one another. The smart countries depends on what your definition of smart is. For these countries that are doing that, this is the smart move because these technologies are going to be at the center of their economies and they need top talent. But also consider the role of companies in this. Right now in India, you have companies like IBM and Microsoft who are literally training tens of thousands of local Indians in AI, in quantum computing. You have Alibaba saying that we want to uh, we want to stockpile blockchain talent for the next 20 years. So companies are also playing a big role. And I think a fundamental question is that, okay, countries are doing this and companies are doing that, but what decisions will the actual talent make? Will individuals make if countries are fighting over them? Or if they are now limited, if you go work in Taiwan, you can't visit China, or tomorrow, if you work for Baidu, you won't get a job in the U.S. technology sector. If these are the kind of questions and, and challenges they face, how will this affect their decision making? Abhishek Prakash, thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Must thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Do join us again next time.